This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Network. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Network does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to Executive Leaders Radio. In this hour, you'll hear directly from our region's finest business leaders. Through each of the interviews, these high-achieving leaders become relatable role models who share how they were able to build their enterprise, their personal secrets of success, about leadership styles and opportunities that lie ahead. Prepare to be inspired and entertained and to hear wisdom unheard elsewhere. Executive Leaders Radio. You're listening to Executive Leaders Radio, broadcast from Radio America. This is your host, Herb Cohen, with my co-host, Shirley Mowry, Hertzbach, and Jim Morgan, People Stretch Solutions. We have a great lineup of guests for you on our show today, including Antoine Ford, President and CEO of Enlightened, Ann Harkins, President and CEO of National Crime Prevention Council, Nick Perdikas, CEO of Devonsoft, and Scott Meza, shareholder of Greenberg Turing. Let's get to know our first guest, Antoine Ford, President and CEO of Enlightened. Antoine, what is Enlightened? What are you guys doing? We are a IT consulting firm focused on technology, software development, cybersecurity, and management consulting. Mm, how large or how small is this firm? We're a little bit more than 200 people. And how'd you get a job with this company? Uh, I was blessed enough to start it. Wow, where are you from originally? Nation's capital, Washington, D.C. How many brothers and sisters? One sister, uh-huh. younger. And what did, uh, what did mom and dad do for a living? Mom, mom and dad were uh, mom and pop upholstery shop in 8th Street in Northeast Washington. Mom and dad owned their own small business. Yes, they did. How young were you when you started working in that business? Well, I probably started visiting that at 6 and started working at 7. And it was an upholstery store. Yes, it was. Uh, so you started working there at 7. What were you supposed to be doing there, and what did you end up doing there? Well, I was supposed to be uh, helping them with... Uh, foam rubber. I was supposed to be helping them with the material, and I actually was selling toys with my sister to the other kids that would come in. Oh, so you started helping out at the store, and then you decided to start making money with your sister by selling your toys. Yes, we did. That's pretty entrepreneurial. Okay. And, and, and wasn't it a little odd back in those days for a minority couple to own a retail store? Oh, very odd. I mean, they were one of the few people that were doing it, particularly being a couple. And so that was, um, I think, very special. It's something we saw early. What did you see special early? Uh, we saw people getting out of their comfort zone. Uh, my dad actually taught my mother how to do upholstery work, and we actually saw that. And so she came out of the home and actually learned upholstery work from my father. Wow. And they ran the store together. Yes, they did. Whoa. Um, all right. Uh, Shirley, what do, you, what do you got? Tell us a little bit about the influence your parents played. How did your mom influence you as a child? I think my mother was, as I call the soul of the household. She was passionate. Um, Although she was from South Carolina, she came to Washington, D.C. at about 21 years old, got here, but she was passionate about uh, moving forward and doing the things in her life. And I think we saw that, and I'm driven. I I believe that anything you need to do, you need to do with a lot of passion. And what kind of influence did your father have on you? My dad uh, came out of the military, and he always would say, did you think about that before you did something? And it taught me a lot about, in some cases, I didn't think about it. It was a problem. And how do you think that translates into your role today? I think I still say that to people in my company. Um, the company name is Enlightened. It's about, you know, we should be better off because we've done certain things. We should think about it. And I ask my staff sometimes, did we think about this before we did it? Yeah. Jim? 
So you shared with us in the green room uh, that you had gone to a Catholic school, but that your parents... Uh, so talk, talk to us a little bit about how you got to the Catholic school. Uh, good question. I education system at that point in public wasn't that good in the 70s, and my parents uh, asked put us in Catholic schools, um, not knowing that at the end of the day they would negotiate and barter for tuition. They would reupholster the furniture in the school in exchange for tuition. Uh, we didn't know that's how we got there as a child, but realizing that's what they did. And in eighth grade, they told you something about college. Yeah, they told us, um, you know, son, we can't pay for college. Uh, and that made me think about, well, how am I going to go to college? Because they really put into education. So I started writing letters to companies that were in technology. I knew I wanted to go into tech. And so I would write letters to IBM at the time and those large companies that a kid hears about. That how many letters did you send out? I probably sent out about 25 letters um, asking them if they paid for school, um, I would come to work for them. I was bartering at the time. Okay, so you would learn the, the bartering, but also sounds like you had a lot of drive. So yeah. How, how does that impact you today? I think today we realize learning from a child, there shouldn't be anything that stops you. Um, there's an obst- obstacle there, but you have to have the vision to be able to say, how do I need to overcome this obstacle? You mentioned that um, the church played an important role in your life. What, what are you talking about? Faith was important to me. I, I, my parents were uh, very involved in the church, and so early on um, I was taught that faith was something critical that we needed to have, and it still plays that role today. Mm-hmm. How, how, how's that play an important role in the business today? Well, you grow up, faith believes that you have to believe in something higher than yourself, and you have to believe in something you don't have. In business, that's the nature of an entrepreneur. i got to believe in something I don't have yet so that I can achieve it. Because mm-hmm. if I can't see it, even though it doesn't exist, there's a problem, and I think that's an issue. And as I learned that by being a person of faith. You, me- you mentioned that uh, mom um, <clears throat> got, got ill with cancer when you were 13-ish, and I'm wondering how that affected you. I think early on, you know, you're close to your mother and you realize that that's the sole person that, that brought you into this world and it made me have a little bit more responsibility. I think I wanted to care for her. She did what was necessary to, to, to help us out and I think that's involved with a lot of being an employer. We want to care for the people that we, we, we employ. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I read the newspapers. What are you talking about? I, I hear that if you don't do your job, you get fired. What are you talking about? You care for your people. Well, realize, I mean, this is a very competitive environment right now. I mean, it's hard to get people. Unemployment is low. So the only difference is if we care for people, there should be a difference between my company and who I'm competing with. Okay, I just wanted to make sure I understood. Who's Thank got the next <laughs> question? So you had, uh, your parents were entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. and they had that faith component. How did What was their uh, impact on the community? Good question. My, my parents really took care of the community. I think um, they were out there on 8th Street trying to clean the community, making sure that they were politically involved. Um, trying to make sure that uh, that was an important part of um, growing that community. If you look at H Street was one of the places that burned down in the 60s. And so when they were there, they wanted to rebuild that whole corridor, which is incredible now if you see it. And you mentioned uh, in the green room that uh, you kind of saw two cities. Tell yeah. us about that. Yeah, growing up in the inner city of Washington, D.C., we grew up in a poor neighborhood, and you realized that was one place. And then when you were able to leave that and saw other parts of the city, you realized there was a difference. And that always um, – bothered me a little bit because why in the same city did we have two different cities so as an entrepreneur today how do you model your parents example um, one of the things I do right now is we give a lot of scholarships to kids in the inner city I'm involved in workforce uh, and so my job right now is to give particularly in technology young people an opportunity to get technology jobs um, this is a different differentiator I think it's important that people look at an economic development as a answer to some of the problems in cities and I learned that from my parents early on as a child. What, what kind of sports did you play as a kid? Uh, football and basketball. Football was my favorite sport. Mm-hmm. What was your role on the team? 
Um, I was a captain of the team. I also played receiver, which is a fairly independent re- uh, position because you're right, off to right, the right, side. Right, 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 right. You were the captain of the team. Yes. How'd you how how'd you get to be the captain of the team? Uh, I like to win, and at the end of the day, I said I need to be captain because we need to win. So <laughs> did you? Um, did they appoint you that, or did you work your way into it? I lobbied. Uh huh. I, I have a <laughs> I have a question. What, what's the similarity between being the captain of the football team when you were a kid? And uh, being the, it says here you're the president and CEO of this organization called Enlightened, which is 200 people. Is there a similarity there? I think it is. I think it's vision. I think ultimately as a captain of a team that you're playing as a child, you, as a child, you have to have vision on where you want to go. And I think as a CEO, you have to have vision because you have to see things that other people don't see. Uh, how good were you at figuring out where people fit on the team back when you were playing football? I was pretty good. The only issue I had it was that if they were a friend and they weren't that good, you were conflicted because oh. you wanted your friend to be on the team. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So you're a loyal kind of soul, huh? I am. How's I am. that loyalty playing out in business? Um, as a CEO, I learned something very early on is that sometimes you have to make sure that your loyalty to people doesn't affect your business if somebody's not good enough to be there. Mm-hmm. And that's a tough decision at times when somebody you care yeah, about. Yeah, because it affects everybody else. It affects everyone else. You know, if the CFO is not the right CFO or et cetera, et cetera, you know. It, uh, but I would still work, just like I would work with, the, you know, my, my friends at that time as a kid, I would work to try to help somebody get another job if they couldn't work for me. Uh-huh. What, what, so you you have a real creative streak, if I'm reading it correctly. Mm-hmm. And and uh, how, how else did this creative streak show up when you were a kid, eight to fourteen ish? Um, well, I give you an example. My my parents told me I wanted to go to the prom and I wanted to have a suit, and it was a designer suit. And my parents said, if you pay for half, I'll pay for half. So I literally went throughout the neighborhoods asking to cut grass and raise the money I can do so I could have this designer suit for the prom in the eighth grade. Oh, my gosh. Sounds like there's not much that's going to stand in your way. No, it shouldn't. That's his mom's influence, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so so uh, with this designer suit that you wanted for the prom, did you raise half the money? I raised half the money. It was exactly half? It was exactly half. Uh-huh. So you know what it's like to go meet a goal. Yes. Uh-huh, and do anything it takes to meet the goal. Would you think your parents were surprised? No, they weren't. I think, well, she was surprised I got it so quickly. Uh, my mom, but uh, I think they knew I was going to get it done. Do you remember how much money it was? Uh, $80. You still remember? I remember. So this was a suit that was going to cost 160 bucks. Yes, it was. Uh-huh. And, uh, and you remember raising 80 So you were knocking door, you were going door to door raising the money fundraising. I was fundraising at the time uh-huh. for, the, for cutting the grass. We had competition in the neighborhood, and uh-huh. so I had to actually lower my prices to Get the uh-huh. get the business. Uh huh. I understand. So you understood about uh, you know just you understand how to build a business, to market and to sell and mm-hmm. build a team. What's the website address of this organization called Enlightened? Enlightened.com. Let me have that one more time. Enlightened.com. We've been speaking with Antoine Ford, President and CEO of Enlightened, here on Executive Leaders Radio. Don't forget to visit our website. It's executiveleadersradio.com. Learn more about our executive leaders. And we will be back in a moment, right after this business spotlight. Your name and organization is? Anna Rappaport. And what's the name of the organization? Acceleration Coaching. And why is it called Acceleration Coaching? Because it's a combination of acceleration, as in to go faster, and excellence. Ah, were you from originally? I grew up in Los Angeles. And uh, what did mom and dad do for a living? What What was their influence on the name of this organization? 
uh, my mother taught uh, English in South Central Los Angeles, mm -hmm. and she was all about helping people achieve things that they didn't think were possible, and that's fundamentally what the, the business is about. And how about dad's influence? Uh, my father was the sort of person who could look at something and say, wow, no one's ever done this before, but I'm going to do it and make it happen. Mm, so it sounds to me like you got uh, mom and dad both that helped influence the nature, your nature and your nature of this organization. Am I correct about that? Absolutely. Tell me more about that. My parents uh, were very unconventional, and they would do things like, well, first of all, they didn't get married until I was nine. Mm -hmm. I was the maid of honor in my mother's first wedding. Mm -hmm. They also uh, didn't, uh, they, they built a house with their own hands when mm -hmm. I was two years old. Mm -hmm. And so they would do things that other people wouldn't do. So you take a rather unconventional approach to your uh, to your business, don't you? Absolutely. So when you're coaching somebody, you're not just going by the book, you're really trying to get a feel for who they are and you're gonna do whatever it takes to help them get to the goal? Certainly. Tell me more about that. Well, uh, people, in, especially lawyers, tend to be more conventional in the approach they've taken to mm -hmm. their career paths. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point, it becomes necessary when someone is trying to develop a business or mm -hmm. move into leadership roles, mm -hmm. you need to not just follow the path that was put in front of you, you need to forge your own. What's the website address of this organization? It's Acceleration Coaching, E-X-C-E-L-L-E-R-A-T-I-O-N, coaching.com. And your name again is? Anna Rappaport. And this has been your business spotlight. And your name is? Ramon Parker. And Ramon, the name of the organization? Loudon Free Clinic. And you were telling me there's some something special about the Loudon Free Clinic where every dollar that goes in does something else. What was that all about? Yeah, it does something magical. So for every dollar that's donated to our clinic, we can deliver $8 worth of care. And what kind of clinic is this? Who are, you, who are you helping out? What kind of stuff do you guys do? So we're helping out those who are 18 to 64 who are uninsured and low income, 200% or below the federal poverty level. And give me this thing about the math again. Give me how that works. So essentially, I have a, a staff of 12 individuals and 128 volunteers. So with that kind of payer mix, I'm able to deliver you know, anywhere from $8 uh, in care for our patients. Because you've been able to enroll the support of so many volunteers, you're actually keeping the cost of health care down and therefore multiplying the dollars. And making one of, it, one of the best business investments for private corporations who want to invest. And didn't, ah, interesting. So private businesses and individuals can get involved. And didn't you Absolutely. tell me you had a couple of health care challenges yourself? What were they? I have. I've had four open heart surgeries, and mm -hmm. it helps me to understand what patients need. What are you talking about? What do you mean? So the idea of having been on the table or being a patient, I'm able to take a patient focus in how we deliver care differently than most people would. What did you, what did you learn from those experiences personally? What do you appreciate that most of us don't? I appreciate consistency. Um, I think that a, a staff at the hospital, nurses, providers, mm -hmm. parents, mm -hmm. family, all those people consistently being around me and consistently offering me hope. Uh, I'm so full of it that I have to offer that to the patients and to the staff when I'm working with them. What's the website address for the Loudon Free Clinic? Loudonfreeclinic.org. Let me have that one more time. L-O-U-D-O-U-N freeclinic.org. We've been speaking with your name again? Ramon Parker. And this has been your Business Spotlight. Thank you. We're back. You're listening to Executive Leaders Radio. This is your host, Herb Cohen. We'd like to introduce Ann Harkins, President and CEO of National Crime Prevention Council. And what is the National Crime Prevention Council? 
The National Crime Prevention Council is the home of McGruff the Crime Dog, and our mission is to help people keep themselves, their families, and communities safe from crime. Wow. Where where are you from originally? I'm originally from Philadelphia. Uh How many brothers and sisters? Two younger brothers. Two younger brothers. And what was going on with you 8 to 14 years old? The biggest transition I made in that time frame was to move from Catholic school to public school. A very large class to smaller classes and a much more dynamic environment. Uh Uh-huh. Sounds to me like something tough was going on back then. Well, there were 67 kids in my class when I started for the first six years of school. Yeah. And uh, I didn't want to make that move, but my mother really insisted on it. And um, it Uh was an important change in my life, opened my horizons a lot. Uh Uh-huh, but it sounds like it was a tough transition. It was. uh, It was awkward. For example, uh, for the most part at that time... uh, Public school kids, the only Catholic school kids they knew were those who had been thrown out of Catholic school. Uh-huh. So there I was, a smart girl in uh-huh. 1960-ish, uh-huh. and it was uh, it was hard. Oh, boy, I can see that. Uh, who's got the uh, gym? What do you got? What do you want to know? So tell us a little bit about what types of sports you play. In junior high, I became exposed to um, field hockey, and I played field, ho- field hockey and basketball. And what types of roles do you play? Uh, in both cases, I was a s- sort of a combination of defensive and offensive. Okay. And so what did that teach you? Stand up and take it. And in the basketball guard sense, that meant stand up and protect uh, your team, but also take the ball if you could get your hands on it and get it to somebody who could get it in the basket. So you had talked to us a little bit in the green room about the change of funding that you had to go through with your current organization how did you bring that or how did that help you do that tenacity was really important in being determined to make the organization work in a new framework we were essentially federally funded for more than 20 years and we had to make the transition uh, in a very bad economy we had to make the transition to get private funding and support the organization in a whole new way mm-hmm. Shirley? you also mentioned to us that you were involved in theater what did you enjoy most about that I love theater. I've loved theater since I was a very small child. And what I love about it is being transported. But I became involved in theater, which involves a lot of people in collaboration. And even as a young high school student, my art was organization. Uh, And now I serve on the board of a theater festival in West Virginia. And how does it also translate into your role or as CEO, well, CEO. being exposed to public speaking and and sort of knowing how to make a presentation, I think it helped with that. Uh, and also, the most important thing I have learned from that board and from being involved in theater is the importance of collaboration and support for other people. We think of actors as sort of uh, egotists, I think. And in fact, many of them are very shy and they are so supportive of one another. Mm -hmm. Jim? So you talked to us a little bit about kind of the relationship you had with your parents and their friends. Tell us about that. My parents were older when they started having children, and so my mother in particular had uh, single women professional friends who had a very important influence on me. My father traveled a lot. If they had to travel together, one of those friends would come and take care of us. So we were just exposed to um, a lot of smart 
then somewhat um, entrepreneurial and unusual, unusual women, and people who cared a lot about kids, and we were just very lucky to so have So in that. what way has that had an influence on you? I hope it makes me care for people effectively. It gives me a much broader perspective, and uh, I think it softened me. Uh-huh. Do you think it's uh, helped you deal with your board and outside folks that want to know about the organization? Yes, uh, because you have to be able to... Well, I'm very enthusiastic about the National Crime Prevention Council and its work, and so... Um, but being able to make the presentation and explain to people why that matters, why the common sense approach of crime prevention, which saves money and keeps people safe, mm-hmm. is important to, to our society. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, when you're dealing with a board, mm-hmm. you're part of it sure. and you work for it. Well, uh, how, uh, how young were you when you started making money? I was probably in late junior high school and I was babysitting and Probably mm-hmm. shortly thereafter, teaching mm-hmm. swimming. What did you do different than all the other kids that babysat? I w- always made sure the house looked better when uh, I left than it did when I got there. So why, I washed wh- why dishes. Would you, why would you do that stuff? I mean, it's more work. Why would you buy, You get paid extra for doing that? Not usually, but I was a popular babysitter. So did you realize that if you went the extra mile, it would get you additional business, or you just did it because it was the right thing to do? I did it because it was the right thing to do. All right. So what's that have to do with building this organization, the organization, National Crime Prevention Council? The right thing to do was to stay and make it work, and it's working. What do you mean the right thing to do was stay? What are you talking about? Well, there was a, it was a very challenging situation. Uh, many people would have said, this is too hard, or this is more than any one person can handle. Someone asked me yesterday, how many jobs are you doing now? About five. But it gets the job done. Uh-huh. So there was a funding issue, and you decided to stick it out. Yes. So you had told us before that your dad helped put his siblings through college, but he hadn't put himself through so he was putting others before himself. It sounds like you're doing the same thing. I hope so. Wow. Uh, you also mentioned your father uh, taught you an important lesson. What was that important lesson? You have to bend a few fenders before you learn how to drive. Well, what did he mean by that? Well, I had gotten myself into a jam, and I didn't think I could get the car into or out of the garage without damaging one or the other. So I went in and said, I did this. I cut it too close. I need help. And that's an important lesson in this, too. So I learned accountability. So what did your father say when you came into he, the house? And he said, said hmm, you, gotta bend, you have to bend a few fenders before you really so learn how to So as opposed to freaking out and helping you, he made you get it fixed? No, he went and did it. Oh. He fixed it. Yeah, but you learned what from that lesson? I learned that the right thing to do was go in and be, and be up front about the fact that I'd screwed up uh-huh. and that I would get help if I asked for it uh-huh. and that uh-huh. it's okay to make mistakes. Is that still around nowadays? No. Uh-huh. Did Dad know what you were doing for a living? at the na- How long have you been at the National Crime Prevention Council? Uh, about 13 years. Was that around when you no. got that gig? Do you no. think he'd be surprised that you're doing what you're doing? No. Why not? Why would he not be surprised? Because I think most of what I initially learned about crime prevention, I learned from him about taking care of knowing your neighbors, locking your house, taking care of things. Um, So I don't think he'd be surprised at all. So you're your father's daughter. I am. Uh, How about your mom? You think your mom's surprised? Uh, She would have probably encouraged me to make more money. (laughs) (laughs) What's the best part of your day? The best part of my day is working with people. Uh-huh. Shirley, did you have another question about... Uh, um, what was the best year you had yeah, in school? Fourth grade. 
And it's, I was 10. Uh, I was in Catholic school, which was a rather staid sort of place. And we had this very young, dynamic teacher who went out on the playground and played with us and, and took a baseball bat in her hands and whacked balls. And it was just a great year. And what lessons do you think you learned from her? Be dynamic and take chances. How'd you get that lesson about taking chances and be there? Well, you have to envision 1950s Philadelphia Catholic mm-hmm. school, a lot of nuns, and here's this t- probably 23-year-old teacher taking a baseball bat and hitting baseballs with the boys in the playground. So it was, she was rather unconventional. Yes, she was. And you really appreciated that, just like you appreciated some of your friends, some of your parents' friends. Yes. So you appreciate the unconventional. I do. And you've also got the stick-to-itiveness going for you. Huh. How about that? So it und- so basically, that's one of the reasons you've been able to stick with this job for 13 years is because you do have the stick-to-itiveness, and I guess the creativity played out in terms of finding other funding sources and ways to get things done. Yes, and to help people understand that today we have to be, we're fighting intellectual property theft and counterfeit products that can kill you and uh, cyberbullying. So getting into the, being able to speak to people where they are and dealing with the crime problems of today. Huh, interesting. Um, and, uh, so, and earlier, what was the best part of your day? What's the best part of your day? Working with people. What do you mean? Combination of my own folks and my own staff, but also we provide information for crime prevention practitioners across the country, whether they're in a crime prevention association or the crime prevention officer in a small police department. We provide them data. They're doing work on the ground in every city and community in America on shoestring budgets, and that's why we do this. Mm-hmm. What's the website address of this organization? NCPC.org, National Crime Prevention Council, NCPC.org. We've been speaking with Ann Harkins, President and CEO of National Crime Prevention Council, here on Executive Leaders Radio, back in a moment right after this break. Want to help building your business with help from this show's CEOs? Our CEOs can help you uncover more opportunities, grow your sales, connect you, help you raise money, all the big issues, because our CEOs have been there and done that. They've succeeded in creating millions of jobs and earning millions of dollars, and some are available to advise you. Now, email mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. That's mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. The same CEOs you've heard on the show for 10 years may be willing to help you build your business, uncover new opportunities, grow your sales, connect you, help you raise money, all the big issues, because our CEOs have been there and done that, succeeding in creating millions of jobs and earning millions of dollars, and some are available to advise you. Now, email mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. That's mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. We're back. You're listening to Executive Leaders Radio. This is your host, Herb Cohen. We'd like to introduce Nick Perdikas, who's the CEO of Devonsoft. Nick, what is Devonsoft? Devonsoft is a software company uh, that helps businesses run more efficient mergers and acquisitions programs. Mm-hmm. How large or how small is the team? We have 25 employees. And uh, how did you get a job with this company? I'm one of the founders. All right. And where did the venture capital come from? It was uh, founders' money. Oh, all right. And where you're from originally? Um, I was born in Frankfurt, Germany. Moved to Athens, Greece, uh, where we lived for a few years, and then to Washington D.C. when I was eight. All right. And how many brothers and sisters? 
I'm the middle of uh, two brothers. Okay, so you're the middle of three boys. And uh, let's see, Shirley, what do you got? I understand that both your parents own their own business. Tell us a little bit about what they did. Sure. My mother had a retail business um, in Georgetown for 20 years. Um, and then my father had a wholesale business where he imported goods from Europe. And how old were you when you started working with each of them? So with my mother, I was around 12, um, helping around in the store, and my father around 13, going to various trade shows. And I understand you also started your own business at about the same time, is that correct? That's right. Um, I was doing um, lawn cutting service for neighbors around the house. And whose idea was that? That was my idea. And what made you want to start that when you were already working with mom and dad? Um, Well, they were very busy, very active, and I didn't want to be a drain on them and constantly ask them for money when I needed it. So I wanted to kind of pull my own weight and, and do my own thing. So it sounds like independence started at a young age. That's true. Well, but, but I'm trying to figure out if you were working with mom and you were working with dad and, you know, all your friends are out playing and stuff, wouldn't that be enough work? It would, but they weren't paying me. Uh, uh-huh. It was a sort of a, a sense of duty and responsibility to my parents to, to help them. So as this. opposed to resenting them, you felt the duty and responsibility to help them and then even to do more work and to go make money starting your own business. That's right. Huh. Okay. Anne? Nick, we tend to think of entrepreneurs as eldest children. How You're in the middle. How do, what was your relationship with your brothers, and how did that influence your career? So my older brother was 18 when we moved to the U.S., um, so he ended up staying behind in, in Athens uh, for school. And coming here, I was an only child uh, until 10 years later when my younger brother was born. So I had a lot of uh, things kind of on my shoulders um, as an only child, um, almost like the eldest, you know, being here in the U.S. with my parents. Uh How would you treat your younger brother when he came around? Um, I was helping him, helping my parents in terms of... Did your uh, parents tell you to help him? Did they tell you to help out with him or did you just take that on? I, I took that on. It sounds to me like your middle name is responsibility, helping your parents with their business, helping your brother. How's that sense of responsibility affecting your building this business? So I, I put a big focus on the people and uh, nurturing them and helping them succeed um, so they have an environment where they can thrive and uh, developing people um, as they come into the company. Yeah, you really mean that. I see it in your face and you don't normally hear that in the newspapers. You hear about do your job or I'm going to fire you or how, how the boss is a stinker, but you're not like that, are you? No. Uh huh, Jim. Nick, you mentioned to us that you were uh, an avid reader when you were young. What types of things were you reading? Um, I was very interested in science and medicine, so um, it was a lot of just gaining a lot of knowledge, thinking about where I'm going to head in the future into college, and and being prepared for that. And how old you? How old were you then? Um, I started as early as ten, reading. You so know. you weren't reading for entertainment; you were reading for knowledge. That's right. So how does that kind of thirst for knowledge translate to what you're doing today? Um, I have a, a big appetite for constant learning and um, learning from others as well um, and other leaders around the world. So uh, it's part of my regular daily routine. To Do you encourage that with your own staff? Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah earlier you were talking about um, your, old, your younger brother. And um, I want to go back to this thing about, you know, you were working with your parents, not getting paid because you felt the responsibility. 
and you started your own business and it was like you weren't really worried about time for playing and goofing off it was like you're a pretty serious kind of guy aren't you yeah that's something that my father instilled in me what are you talking about what do you mean um, he was a very focused, competitive individual, um, mm-hmm. even from the early days um, in Greece. Being a, uh, a diplomat and having a lot of responsibility of you know, being the, uh, the representative of Greece into the U.S. So mm-hmm. um, I saw him in a lot of different scenarios where he had to take that responsibility on and um, mm-hmm. focus so on it. And how's that, how's that affected your being? Uh, I've learned how to navigate different people's personalities and how to work with um, um, all kinds of different individuals from different backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Um, haven't been around that uh, mm-hmm. growing up. Gotcha. Shirley? What sports did you play as a child? So I gravitated towards skiing and golf. Um, that, that was my, my focus. They're very individual type sports. What were the traits that attracted you to that? Um, I like to be able to get in the zone and focus and, and try to improve, um, really competing against myself. Yeah. Ooh, 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 give me that again. Wait a second. What's that? You like to be in the zone and uh, give me that again? So um, on a sport like uh, golf or skiing, you're very much in the moment mm-hmm. um, and competing against your own time. Uh, if you're going on a downhill race or you're mm-hmm. competing against your own score playing golf. So it's very much the competition is really between your ears and your in your mind uh so how's that had any effect on you building this organization called devonsoft um i take on competition um head on Mm -hmm. and um, i don't believe there's any obstacle that cannot be overcome with enough tenacity and enough creativity and Mm -hmm. time Ah, i just thought i'd ask the question yes james so you mentioned your father's influence what was your mother's influence uh, she was a, a very strong, positive um, person in my life. She uh, encouraged me to go after my dreams. Uh, she, com- she pursued her own dreams to see that and do that for 30 years in business uh, was a great lo- role model for me. Hmm. So okay. your, your mom and dad both ran their own. Was there any, I mean, it was like, how, how are you going to do anything but run your own business? Considering they both ran their own business, you worked in their businesses, you saw their struggles. And as opposed to running away from those struggles, like you were trying to assist them. I mean, you had entrepreneur in your blood from an early age, didn't you? That's right. How many businesses have you been involved with starting? Um, I'd say four. Uh-huh. You've been involved with starting four. How many ideas have you had as opposed to how many businesses have you started? <laughs> I, I lost count. <laughs> so you, you naturally like coming up with business ideas. Yes. Uh-huh. And you've been doing that since you were a kid, haven't you? Yes. Uh huh. Now that you're building this business, do you have other ideas on top of it? Um, yeah, sure. Although this business is the focus. Uh huh. So you're focused on this business, but yet you know you still see other opportunities. Yes. Uh-huh. What drives you to start these businesses? Um, just the the sense of success, the sense of uh, contributing back to uh, people's growth, um, building something from scratch from nothing. Um, I get a, I've gotten a lot of um, feedback and reward on that, you know, going well, from this zero. This thing about building from a, you know, uh, working from a blank piece of paper, how young were you when you started doing that? Um, I um, would say about 13, 14. What was that? 
Um, it was the first idea was um, came out of my father's business, which was going to these trade shows. Yeah. And um, finding out from people complaining about not knowing, um, well, how we're going to get paid. You know, which which of our customers have the weakest uh, you know payment history. So. Um, I started sending letters out to all these vendors that were attending to say, hey, we want to, how about starting a, a reporting business around credit, and I'll pull all this stuff together, and we'll um, start to communicate that out to everybody. Whose idea was that? That was my idea. So you had a pretty clever idea about, you know, creating a critical mass of a marketplace. That's right. So did anybody teach you that? No, it was just, to me, it was common sense. So sort of some of the vision you've got, you know, came from your soul, but you've also developed some disciplines that came from mom and dad, some exposure that came through mom and dad. Yeah, it's the, you know, there's um, failure not being an option um, and, and working around those issues that will come up. There are highs and lows, um, mm-hmm. whether life or business, and you just have to know how to get through the lows um, mm-hmm. so you can benefit from the highs. That's the skiing and the golf stuff, isn't it? Yeah, that too. What's the website address <laughs> of this organization known as Devonsoft? Devonsoft.com, and that's spelled D-E-V-E-N-S-O-F-T. Let me, let me have that one more time. D-E-V-E-N-S-O-F-T. Dot com. We've been speaking with Nick Perdikas, CEO of Devonsoft, here on Executive Leaders Radio. We will be back in a moment right after this business spotlight. And your name is? Tia Flick. And Tia, what, what organization are you with? WearAware. And uh, what is WearAware? What do you guys do? We're a digital agency. Mm-hmm. And what's your specialty in the agency? I focus on search and analytics. Search and analytics. What are you talking about? What do you mean? So that's uh, how you show up organically at Google. Uh-huh. Uh, it's pay-per-click. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then how to measure all of that. Now, there's only certain certain kinds of businesses that should be worrying about that stuff, right? Nope. Everyone should be worrying about it. Tell us a little bit about what types of clients and what kinds of industries you've been able to help. We work across a broad range of industries. Um, so we work with everyone, local companies mm-hmm. who might do air conditioning and HVAC mm-hmm. to really large companies that you might have heard of, like Pitney Bowes. Mm -hmm. And you're helping these folks, your specialty in the firm is helping them with a digital strategy? Yes, so I I specifically focus on uh, all their search needs. Mm -hmm. What what, what do you like about that gig? Well, the the industry is moving at a lightning fast speed, Mm -hmm. and I love being able to help our clients guide through that chaos that's happening. So you come up with creative ideas and present these ideas to them regarding how to get them results from search and all that other kinds of stuff. That's correct. And you got to keep involved with them because there's so many things changing all the time, it sounds like. Yes, constantly. Hmm. Doesn't that frighten you? All that change? Oh, I think it's so exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I, I love mm-hmm. the constant pace of change. And What's the website address for the organization? It's wearaware.com. Let me have that again. Wearaware.com, W-H-E-R-E-O-W-A-R-E.com. We've been speaking with your name again is? Tia Flick. And this has been your Business Spotlight. I'm Tina Leone. I'm the CEO of the Boston Business Improvement District. And what is the Boston 
business improvement district? We work to attract, support, and connect the most compelling, creative, and ambitious minds in our region. Boston is known as an epicenter for research and discovery. Uh, some of the greatest things that are invented, such as the MRI, the barcode, the internet, the first satellite, all were either conceived, funded, or developed by organizations here in Boston. How, how old is this organization? We're just, just shy of six years old. How long have you been there? How long have you been uh, there? Almost six years as well. Did you found this organization? Yes, I, I am the founding CEO. Why did you do that? Well, they, they, the organization actually came about uh, by the commercial property owners in why, Boston. Why, why, why does it turn you on? Why does your gig turn you on? <laughs> people. I mean, we the, the, the ability to connect people and then who knows? the next great idea is going to result from that. We have incredible minds in the Washington, D.C. area, and Boston is, as I said, the epicenter for the smartest people in this area. So your job, you're like the master connector. I feel like the mayor of, of Boston, the mayor of innovation, because that's uh -huh. what's happening. So your, idea, your, your thought is in order to create more stuff, in order to launch more businesses, in order to cause more good, it's a matter of connecting exactly. the right people. Exactly. And you like being in the middle of all that I, stuff. Oh, we love it. We love it. And simple things, just connecting people through events, through art, uh, through a happy hour. Mm -hmm. You don't know what's going to come out of that. Mm -hmm. That's what's exciting. So it's all about the people. And you're the uh, you're the founder of this organization. Is this a nine to five kind of job oh, for you? Hell no. It's a lot longer uh -huh. than that, baby. So do you have to you have to work the weekends and stuff yeah, like that? Yeah, sure, sure. Let me have the website address of this sure, organization. Balsambid.com, and, and you can download Boston Connect mobile app. Let me have uh, let me have that website address one more Balsambid. time. Balsambid. Com. It's B A. Give me the spelling on that. B A L L S T O N B I D dot com. Excellent. Your name again is Tina Leone. And the name of the organization is the Balsam Business Improvement District. And this has been your business spotlight back in a moment. One help building your business with help from the show's CEOs. Our CEOs can help you uncover more opportunities, grow your sales, connect you, help you raise money, all the big issues because our CEOs have been there and done that. Succeeding in creating millions of jobs and earning millions of dollars. And some are available to advise you. Now, email mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. That's mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. The same CEOs you've heard on the show for 10 years may be willing to help you build your business, uncover new opportunities, grow your sales, connect you, help you raise money, all the big issues because our CEOs have been there and done that. Succeeding in creating millions of jobs and earning millions of dollars. Some of the CEOs who have appeared on our shows over the last 10 years may be willing to help you grow, assuming you've ser you're serious about your success, serious about your own success, because it all starts with the leader. If you're serious about creating your own successful business or truly committed to putting your nose to the grindstone and doing whatever it takes to make your business successful, we may be able to match you with successful CEOs who have created millions of jobs and earned millions of dollars to help you create your success. We've established unique relationships with a unique universe of over 7,000 CEOs who have created substantial wealth for their companies, their teams, and themselves. These women and men get the build in their blood and often continue to start and build businesses even after they've created substantial wealth for themselves because they love the challenge of building a business. Perhaps we can present you and your business to some of these CEOs to gain their interest in helping you. Now, email mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. That's mentors at executiveleadersradio.com to hopefully match you with some of the CEOs we've had on the show for the last 10 years. Mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. 
We're back. You're listening to Executive Leaders Radio. This is your host, Herb Cohen. We'd like to introduce Scott Meza, who's a shareholder at Greenberg Torig. What is Greenberg Torig, Scott? Uh, Greenberg Torig is a large 2,000 lawyer law firm, international, and uh, mm-hmm. 40 offices around the world in the uh, U.S. Uh-huh. Where are you from originally? I was born in Portugal, um, moved when I was a young boy to southern Texas, mm-hmm. and then moved uh, at about 13 to D.C. and Virginia area. Uh-huh. And wh- what were your parents doing in, Port- in uh, Portugal? My father was a Presbyterian minister, and my parents were missionaries who took a vow to live with the poor on the hills of Lisbon for a few years, they ministering were- to the poor. Cuban missionaries ministering to the poor in Portugal, and that's where you were born. Correct. And your dad was a Presbyterian minister. He was. Uh-huh. The only Cuban who wasn't Catholic. He happened to be Presbyterian. Huh. Okay. You come from a rather unconventional background. When you moved to Virginia, you <clears throat> were assigned a nickname. What was your nickname? You know, when I first came to school, eighth grade in, in uh, Northern Virginia private school, my nickname was Tex. Why? Because I no one could understand me. They knew I was from Texas. I had a thick drawl, and I still wore cowboy boots, believe it or not. Uh-huh. So I was, it was unique. For that school, but you you know you came from an affluent background, and you came to McLean, which which was affluent, so you fit right in. Well, we weren't affluent. My I was a scholarship kid, and my parents lived in a house provided by the church, so we didn't own anything, but didn't have any perception of not having money. But definitely entering a community where money is very important. I had not had that experience before. How'd that make you feel? You know, it did not make me feel bad. It made me feel interested. It made me feel a little aspirational, like. I'd like to join that world, too. Wow. Okay. Shirley. So how young were you when you first started making money? You know, I was a, as a young boy, I would cut grass uh, in people for people in Texas. My first real job was when I moved to Washington. My father said, you're going to have a job, the first thing you're going to do. And so I got a job at the Smithsonian Institute. What were you doing? My job was cleaning animal skulls. And how did you enjoy that? Well, I loved animals, but I learned that that was not going to be my career and that I, I better find something else to do because that's a, it's not a lot of fun. Uh-huh, James. So what type of sports did you play? <clears throat> I, was a, I was a huge sport, sports kid. I loved baseball and, and football. That's all you had in Texas. Baseball was my real love. Okay. And what roles did you play in baseball? Baseball, first baseman, and pitched. Okay. And football, um, really, basically, a lineman. And what's typically kind of the characteristics of those roles? Well, for ba- you know, the character of both roles is one, it's team sport. So you're playing with your friends, but you're competing with your friends, which is a nice thing. And it's an easy way to measure, am I any good or not? And you can be good not necessarily at, by accomplishing things, but just being a good teammate or somebody who's funny. At that age, kids like to be around people that interest them. So it's a great social experience for me, but I, but I love the sports. Now, how, does that, uh, how do you bring that to work today? Well, I'm really a funny lawyer. You know, I, I'm, I, I do m and I take it very seriously, but we try to have fun. You know, it is a social and, and personal and psychological business selling companies. Your specialty is what? M&A, mergers and acquisitions. So you help entrepreneurs buy and sell their businesses and other businesses. That's correct. Okay. So I would think that, maybe I'm wrong, that that's all about negotiation. It is about negotiation, but people nego- human beings negotiate. So understanding human beings is a is a 
good insight to begin a negotiation. Wait, wait hold on for a minute here. So what, what, who had this insight in the people, which is lending itself to your successful legal M&A? Was that mom or dad? You know, it's both. What do you mean? Well, I'd say my dad, just because in a church, you, you meet dozens of people every Sunday and, and Wednesdays. And so you learn about people very different than yourself. My mom was a really kind, empathetic woman, 13th of 14 children. So she understood people as well. So you learned about people. And you didn't make judgments about them. You just learned about them. We made some judgments, but not always. Uh, okay, so I'm, does this work? Okay, I could be wrong here again. Does this work empathy have anything to do with your success as a successful merger and acquisition I, attorney? I absolutely think so, Herb, yes. What, what, what's the connection there? The connection is um, empathy allows you to communicate with people. An M&A deal is about communicating complicated concepts, but you're talking to so many different groupings of people around an M&A deal. Your client who is nervous and concerned about selling their company. You have to have empathy there. The other side's trying to buy. You gotta have empathy with them because they need to get something out of the deal as well. And from that you fashion, hopefully, a deal that's a win-win. And that starts with understanding people. The law is important, the technical part's important, but it's a people business. Uh, You mentioned that when you moved to Washington, D.C. from Texas, quote unquote, the world opened up. What do you mean by that? Well, if you've ever lived in Texas City, Texas, you'll understand that because that's it's poor, it's flat, and it's conservative. I moved to Washington. It's a beautiful spring, beautiful people, culture, languages, things I had not really experienced. It just seemed like a, a much more vibrant and exciting place. How'd you deal with that? I, You know, I kind of just dove in. I mean, I just absorbed. I was an interested kid. I was an interesting – I was interested in learning. I wasn't put off by it. It was more – Exciting. I'm sure there was apprehension about it, but you know, you're at that age. You're a sieve. You you want to take. You want to have experience. You want to learn. And uh, you know, I had a lot of personal self confidence, so it wasn't like I was. I felt like I was a duck. You know, a fish out of water. I just felt like I was a fish in a bigger. This, pond. this ability of yours to be a sieve, to be a sponge, to absorb. Do you think that's one of the reasons you're successful as an M and A attorney? I think so. Why? I, well, I just think it's an essential part of the job, but you know, also it makes the job more interesting. You're better at jobs that you like and that that are interesting to you. So if you like people and you can absorb and absorb things from other people, it just makes the job more interesting. And I think when that makes you a better lawyer. So coming from a small town, poor kid, one wouldn't think of that as being somebody with confidence. Where did you build that confidence? You know, I don't. I think it comes from being loved, and I think it comes from parents putting expectations on you about how you're going to be and what your behavior is, but love you unconditionally. I think that's part of it. Sometimes it's just lucky, you know. I was just born good-looking. Well, I can't help it. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, gosh. You, thank God this is radio. Where, that's where, all I can where, say. Where, 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 where does Willie Mays fit into this whole thing? Willie Mays, man, I love baseball above all things. And Willie Mays, when I was a young boy, he was at the very end of his career. He's a phenomenal person. What he, what he, what he had to overcome to be a, you know, a, a black superstar in Major League Baseball, and he, but he was just an incredibly gifted athlete and uh, really the best baseball player of all time, I think. Go ahead. Tell us the rest of the story. I'd never been to a professional baseball game. My father finally took me to the Astrodome, and at that, that was the end of Willie Mays' career. He was like 42. He was playing for the Mets as he was all washed up. I was so excited to see him. I remember a, ball, a simple fly ball to center field. He puts his basket catch that he was famous for, and he dropped the ball. And I remember just crying and my dad saying, don't worry about it, you know. Why, why were you crying? 
Well, just because I had such expectations that I'd, I'd see him go three for four with two home runs and, you know, perfect fielding. And he was just an old man playing center field. So as opposed to uh, laughing at him or as opposed to ridiculing him, you really felt I an felt, empathy there. Yeah, I felt empathy for Willie Mays. How does that affect your relationship with your clients? You know, most clients I feel empathy for. I mean, you know, and you're an M&A lawyer. When you sell your business, it's the biggest thing in your life. Next to the birth of your children or maybe your marriage, it's a huge thing in your life. So you have to have empathy with the client because they're going to – it's an exciting and terrifying Well, you don't time. have to. It sounds like you do. Well, I do. It's more, I do because that's my nature what's and the I benefit, think it makes you better. What's the benefit to your client of your empathy? What's that? What's the benefit of your to your client of your empathy? I think, you, one, you, you, you under, you're better able to achieve what their goals are when you understand what they want. Two, they get confidence that you're not just there to make a buck. Wait a minute, hold on, hold on. Yep. So you're telling me that maybe one of your competitive edges is because you really do care about people like you did with Willie Mays, that uh, you really do have a better understanding of what their needs are. So when you're negotiating and structuring these arrangements, you're able to work as a better and stronger teammate. Yeah, I, I couldn't say it better than that. Uh-huh. Is that true? It is true. What? It is true. Uh, and I, 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 it doesn't mean you, that's the only path to success, but that's what works for me. Uh, it's I'm a people person. I wouldn't want to do a job that was sterile or disconnected from the client. I wouldn't be a good tax lawyer. Uh-huh. But so, M&A uh, is perfect for and that. And you, you mentioned earlier you came from a reasonably poor background. How, how's that uh, affecting you nowadays? Well, I came from a very poor background. No money in, in, in the church, and there's no money in being a housewife. Uh, but um, when I got to Washington and I saw – what success looked like in a form of business success, I, I was interested in in achieving financial success as well. You know, maybe I maybe I should have been an entrepreneur like some of the other folks were listening to, but the law was where it took me. Yeah, and, it sounds like you're you're an I'm excellent merger and acquisition attorney. What's the website address for Greenberg Torg? GTLaw.com. We've been speaking with Scott Mazla, who's the she's a shareholder at Greenberg Torg here on Executive Leaders Radio, as well as we've had the opportunity of speaking with Antoine Ford, President and CEO of Enlightened, and Harkins, President and CEO of National Crime Prevention Council, Nick Predikas, CEO of Devonsoft, and again, most recently, Scott Mazla. Shareholder Greenberg Tour, I'd like to thank my co-hosts, including Shirley Mowry from Hertzbach and Jim Morgan, People Stretch Solutions, for giving me a hand structuring the questions. Hope you're providing our listening audience an educational and entertaining show. We'd like to thank our listening audience for listening. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a radio show. Don't forget to visit our website. It's executiveleadersradio.com. To learn more about our executive leaders, that's executiveleadersradio.com to learn more about our executive leaders. Thanks to Radio America for carrying the show. Uh, Folks, do have a nice day. Again, don't forget to visit executiveleadersradio.com. Have a nice day. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to Executive Leaders Radio, the region's premier radio show highlighting local executive leaders. We hope you've enjoyed the show here on 1500 AM. You can learn more about Executive Leaders Radio by visiting executiveleadersradio.com or tune in next time right here on 1500 AM. That's executiveleadersradio.com.